we can kind of see this as a um, short sort of episode 6.5. I want to talk about what hijacks our, our minds and what hijacks our goals. People are never going to be free of their context. Just like it is so hard to think outside of the bounds of our language, the words that we use to form our thoughts and to communicate them, it's very hard to imagine what your drive and goals would be like outside of the context of where and when you're born. It's part of why it's so easy to look back and demonize people throughout history and why it's so hard to understand how people could be motivated uh, to do the atrocious things that we know that they've done. And I, I'm not justifying that. You know, I uh, believe I've called out Christopher Columbus before, and I'd like to call him out every single day because the actions that he took, um, not just the repercussions from his actions, but the actual actions that he commanded um, during his time in the Americas were so atrocious that I feel like anyone should have known, that anybody would have known that this was a terrible, terrible way to treat anyone. But really, these people are colonized by their ideology. And perhaps, just perhaps, he wasn't a sociopath. Maybe it was that he was learning really sociopathic values from his ideology, from the power structure, from the church that he was uh, there in the name of, from the trading route that he was looking for, um, you know, for, through the, the king and queen and whatnot. Maybe. I, I think he was probably a sociopath. I guess I'd have to read a little bit more about what he wrote to really come to a, a fair conclusion. And then, even then, I'd probably have to be an actual psychologist in order to figure this out. But I think that, that he was a great example of somebody who's just plain evil and shouldn't exist. But when you look at people who existed, um, coincided with ages of genocide and slavery and all these terrible things. And you look back and you say, well, they should have done something that they were taking part in a very terrible system and something should be done about it. Now you're right. You're right. They should, but what that would involve for many of them is the ability to open their eyes to the ways in which their minds have been colonized by the power structure that they existed in. Now, that's what we're really trying to do um, with education and with, with uh, self-betterment is we try to break free of the ways that we have been colonized by our power structures, by our contexts. Um, so it is hard to do. So, for example, uh, we know that people in the future are going to look at us and um, feel completely... Um, insulted that we drove cars the way we do, that we used combustible, non-renewable energies in the way that we do. We know that they'll look at us and they will wonder what in the world we were thinking that we would eat food that's picked by child slaves. And you're thinking, I don't eat food that's picked by child slaves. Well, 
you had a Nestle product lately? From what I've read and from what I understand, there are some practices in many of the companies that harvest chocolate that would make the hair stand on your head. We've become a little bit familiar with the notions of, of uh, the, the blood diamond, of, of what goes on in diamond mines. Um, not to mention that the monopoly that owns diamonds makes them artificially scarce and artificially valuable. So one of these great examples of our conspicuous consumption are just artificially conspicuous. Diamonds are common enough. We could all have plenty of them. <laughs> we have more than you'd think. And yet the prices are kept high by it being owned by Monopoly that was like bought out in like 1880 or something like that, the De Beer brothers. So people will look back at us with really negative feelings. The same way that we look back at people from history with really negative feelings. Like I said, most of the time we're wrong. Most of the time we're wrong about what we think. We're wrong about what we feel. Uh, we're wrong about what we feel like we know. And not only are we wrong, but we're, we're way off. And a lot of what we're off about is this idea that we walk around thinking and feeling rationally and making rational, intelligent decisions. That a lot of our own impulses are governed by our context, are governed by our culture, are governed by the feelings of others. A lot of our goals are this way. This whole idea of the American dream is, like we said last time, is an abstraction of more, more, more. And maybe that's not what is going to make us happy. But it really feels like it. It really feels like it because that's what we see around us. And this is what we see as happiness. This is what's depicted to us all the time. This drive for more. And that drive is part of what makes people sell their lives for about $48,000 a year. That they will spend their days doing things they don't enjoy for people who they don't like for the promise that they were going to be advancing in a direction that we've all agreed is important and right and happy. And it is so deeply embedded that this is a choice you never made. This is something that has been all around you since you were born. Completely deep into it. Grocery shopping with your mom, going down the aisles, looking up at cereal boxes with cartoon characters that look down at you and make eye contact, and it keys in with you, and you want these things, and your parents ignore you. And those same cereal commercials were, have uh, characters that are built around this idea of don't listen to your parents, choose us, and keep nagging until you get us. And eventually the child learns that they can nag to get their, you know, tricks or what have you, and that they should not expect their parents to give in easily. They should not expect their parents to understand why they like it or why they want it. It keys in with an impulse that's deep inside the child's mind. This need for some measure of power and independence to exercise it. 
And when you're stuck in a grocery basket, you're buckled in there with a stressed out parent going down the aisle, this is the one place where you can reach out and feel the independence and feel the power. And then you get a bright sugary cereal as a reward. And rewards do great things as motivators. Advertising keys in and makes a precognitive link between you and the purchasing of their product and the resolution of some unsated emotional response deep inside yourself. We have all sorts of emotions that aren't really allowed to come out within our our, uh, societal contexts. We have a, a need to aggress, a need to be seen, a need to dominate. And it's not cool to satisfy these needs. Let's go back to the grocery store by walking up and seeing a grocery store line that's too long for you and pushing people out of the way and being the next person up there. So instead, advertisers link that aggression with buying cars. That you can one-up the next guy. You can be better, faster with this car than with that. That you will be a badass. That somehow your ability to acquire an absurdly expensive car is a badge that you can wear to display your value to others. We display our values constantly. I mean, look at, you know, let's go back to diamonds. I bought my wife a diamond ring in 2002 before she was my wife. And it was a silly uh, purchase, um, honestly. It was the most expensive thing I'd ever bought at the time. I did it with student loan money redact that and I um, knowing what I know now about diamonds I never would have done it because the whole point of a diamond on your hand is to show people that you can afford to have something that is absolutely useless and absolutely expensive but that's not you know unique to jewelry that's not unique to um, engagement rings of course, it's, uh, we, we do it all the time. You know, one type of car will get you there the same as another, but th- we want this one. This shows something about us. This one shows that, that I'm powerful. I get the big, tall truck. This one shows that I'm um, more uh, socially conscious. I get the Prius. This one shows that I'm, that I'm wealthy. I get the M220J by Acura. And that, of course, you know, whatever that car is, speaks to other people of that class. Because we're always speaking to our own class more than anybody else. So advertisers uh, and the whole commercialism really comes in to link us to making these choices without even thinking about them. Because honestly, there's too much to think about. Our brains don't want to think. Our brains use up too much energy as it is in their minds. And they would like to release that by following emotional impulses. So advertisers pay people to link purchasing their items with an emotional impulse. You go to the store, you're looking at a million different laundry detergents, and they all do the same thing. Every one of them does the same thing. And the job of the marketer is to get you to feel like there's a certain one of these soaps that you identify with as a person, that speaks to your class, that speaks to your values, that speaks to your status. That you're just affluent enough for this stuff. And they're going to make several different 
um, lines, the, the companies that own them within that same product to speak to the different types of people. The same way that a record company doesn't just specialize in, in one type of music anymore. That they, they want to advertise to everyone. They want to have a band and a, a group and a singer for each and every uh, little niche out there. This is the way the companies are. That, that really, if you stripped out this illusion of choice from, from a grocery store trip, you'd have a much smaller store, much fewer choices. And this sounds terrible and dystopian. And look what happened to the Soviet Union in the 80s. And, and we want to avoid that. But instead, we're able to jockey and raise prices by pitting these own their companies against themselves and to speak to lots of different values through very hypocritical mouths. I mean, for example, a few years ago, uh, Dove did this wonderful ad campaign about um, self-esteem and, and how the beauty industry, how we know that you know that the beauty industry sucks, the Dove Real Beauty campaign. It was great. And, and, and what the Dove Real Beauty campaign was really saying was, was they're speaking to, you know, somebody like me who says you want to buy products for your family, buy to the company that's not trying to, to bamboozle you and not trying to exploit your, uh, your predisposition to place value on how you look and to place power based on how you look because we know that that's bull. Same company at the time owned Axe Body Spray. And Axe Body Spray was all about the objectification. All about how if you're a dude and you spray this axe on you that you're going to have um, the gals flocking to you. And you're going to have your choice of whichever one you want on whichever night you want. These mixed signals do wonderful jobs. They do a wonderful job of speaking to not only different sides of our society, but the different sides of our brain. Um, there's a wonderful essay out there about Victoria's Secret that was written in like 1996. It's a little out of date these days. But about the Victoria's Secret catalog and the mixed signals that it gives. About the way that it satisfies the id and strokes the ego. That it um, is both um, alluring and exciting and yet has about it an air of class and um, uh, even... Uh, humbleness to it and in the way that everything is is presented and that it's a, a perfect example of the confusing messages that you get about um, sex in a traditionally Protestant um, puritanical society like like the one we came from so follow the money Oh, there, there's more money put into advertising than anything else. And it really, the ultimate message of advertising is that you can achieve forgiveness. Forgiveness for the conflict of emotions inside the different modules of your brain by acquiring this product. That this product will offer you the same sort of feeling that a Catholic priest offered to people back in the 1600s of being forgiven of those impulses that you don't really want to have on display. Resolve them for you and bring them to a close. And none of this is on accident. People are, are conspicuous consumers. This idea of keeping up with the Joneses um, goes much deeper than you know this uh, sort of 1950s notion of, of the nuclear family moving out to the suburbs. It's a great story. Um, 
And I'm again, I'm, don't make me crack a book and get the facts right here. Let me just relate it to you as a story. Uh, where the Tsar of Russia in the late 1800s or early 1900s wanted to s- see Russians as behaving more cosmopolitan, uh, to be part of uh, the more affluent members of uh, the European broader community. And where he started was with, with beards, because Russians were all wearing beards, and Europeans were not. They were shaving. And so he didn't want to be a dictator. He didn't want to be a total jerk and say, hey, nobody gets to wear a beard anymore. We want to look like classy Europeans. Um, and instead what he did was put a tax on the beard. He taxed your beard by the inch so that the longer the beard you had, the more in taxes you had to owe. And so, of course, the first result of this was that people started shaving. They were like, I don't need any more taxes. I'm shaving. And then the really rich guys got an idea. They'd grow their beards long. They'd show just how boss they are by getting their beards to be as long as possible and walking around and saying, look at this. I can afford this beard. And this, of course, bled down into people saying, well, honey, I I can't go to work and have them think I can't afford a beard. So suddenly, people are more bearded than ever. And the czar is like, well, this is good for our taxes, I guess, but dang, okay. Because there's nothing as silly as people in their economics. Nothing as silly as people and how scared they are of themselves. They want to be seen in a certain way, that they want to communicate a certain thing about themselves. And it's because of this inner conflict of evolution that has, has built our brains into the state that they are. So conspicuous consumption became a way of life in America. It became the way things are. In the 1950s, after the war, the economy's booming. And they were like, how can we keep this going? We're, we're rocking this out. This is really good for us. And Victor Lebeau, who was an economic advisor to Eisenhower, flat out said, we need to make consumption our way of life. We need to make people get their spiritual satisfaction from consuming, using up, throwing out, and rebuying stuff as often as possible. So while a lot of this sounds really like tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, maybe bust out those tinfoil hats for a few minutes because that literally, that conversation happened, literally became the advice that the country do this. They do this from all sorts of things, you know. Um, not only, you know, ideas of fashion, ideas of, of uh, sating our emotions through aggressing, through bettering each other, through uh, creating stereotypes through which we buy things so that we sort of signal to each other that this is the kind of person I am, these are the clothes that I wear, this is who I fit in with. Um, they also do it through, through planned, uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence is having something break so that you rebuy it. And uh, this was probably founded, I guess, with Henry Ford, the guy who was creating the Model T. The Model T was the first factory-built car, blah, 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 and everybody had one, and it was awesome. And they all started ending up in the dump about the same time. And this concerned Henry. He was like, dude, my cars are breaking down. Everybody bought one, and now they're, they're, they're 
ending up in the dump. So he sent out his engineers to collect up a bunch of old Model Ts from different dump yards around, bring them back to the factory, take a look at them, and try to figure out why are these things giving out. And again, don't nail me on the facts here, but get my gist that they looked through all this stuff and said, well, everything seems to be kind of giving out at the same time. Uh, the one thing that's good on every single car we've got here is the carburetor. The carburetor is looking awesome, you know. Um, while this one's transmission's okay, that one's bad. This one's this is good. This one's you know the chassis or whatever is bad here. And then Ford is like, whoa, whoa, but the carburetor is good on all of them. And I said, yeah, yeah, hell of a carburetor, man. Good work. And Ford goes, make that carburetor break sooner. Because by the time all this research was done. People who had dumped their cars went out and bought new Model T cars. And this became a model. This became a production model. Design magazines were full of advice about how to do this. Full of advice about how to make your products last long enough to gain the consumer's trust, but to break soon enough to need replacement. I mean... You know, these days, I don't repair anything. I, I had my refrigerator stopped working, and I had a repairman come, and he took a look at it, and he said, yeah, the motherboard on this is, is, uh, is broken, so you're going to need to repair the motherboard. And I was like, wow, the motherboard it has a computer? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they don't even make them anymore. I was like, great. And he goes, so it'll be about $600. It'll take me a couple weeks to get another one in. I have to order it from such and such. And I was like, whoa, 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 just forget it. 600 bucks, I'm just going to get a, a new fridge. You know, that's it's the same price. And he goes, we'll tell you what, I'll buy this motherboard for from you for 200 bucks. And I was like, why? And he goes, because then I can repair it and I can sell it to somebody else for 600 bucks. And I'm like, what? Why don't I give you 200 bucks and you repair it and give it back to me? That's not how it went down. Um, so our context that we live in is blinding to us. It's blinding. If you grew up thinking that you were destined to be a rock star, that that's just kind of what it felt like you were going to do with your life, just imagine you wouldn't have thought that 10,000 years ago. You wouldn't have thought that 1,000 years ago. You wouldn't have thought you were going to be a rock star. You know, you would have thought you were going to be a leather worker or something. You know, the best damn leather worker around. You would have thought you were going to be a, a corn engineer, you know, or something like that. Um, so, we are surrounded by this uh, encasing of ideas. And within the broader societal context, the parts that you really just kind of can't get away from... There's smaller and smaller encasings, smaller and smaller little cages that keep you in place to where much of what you feel like you're doing and navigating your life is really the result of very limited and planned choices and that you've been designed by the social construction that you're immersed in to make very predictable choices within those very limited and planned decision opportunities. I mean, when, when uh, the United States got off the ground, they felt like they had done a really wonderful thing. And within their context, they thought that they had made 
themselves free, and they had made all people free. You know, only there were limitations within their societal context as to what constituted a person, as to what freedom meant, as to who got to make these choices, whether it was landowners or men or women, what color these people were. And they felt like they were faced with a really challenging thing here. Because within all of that context that they couldn't see, they could see that they were dealing with a bunch of white people from European countries uh, originally who didn't all have a shared broader context. And they were looking for ways to sort of unify so that they just didn't turn into a broken confederation of states and the states being from different neighborhoods of the old world, which was the big fear. And they came up with a lot of different strategies for this. And one of the strategies was the public schooling system. They figured that if you have everybody have compulsory school and everybody's taught through a similar curriculum, that you'll have this sort of base starting place. Everybody will learn the same history. Everybody will work from the same sort of grammar books, have the same um, ideas taught to them, and they will become to have a unified sort of consciousness about them with a unified story and backstory. That way, if somebody from Virginia talks to somebody from Boston, that they'll have something in common and feel like they are a same people and not a different people. Because at the time, like having an Italian and a um, Irishman hangout was like volatile. To them, that was multiracialism. To them, that was a, um, a, a difficult bridge to cross. So they thought that they could at least unite everybody in this sort of story. And there, of course, there are different ways to do it. Newspaper publications and um, books. And uh, it took a while for the American literature scene to sort of get off, off the ground. But when radio came along, radio made a massive leap. A massive leap to this sort of shared collective consciousness because now you had people listening to similar radio shows and sometimes the same radio show coast to coast. Coast to coast. So they started having a different kind of shared ideology. You could get somebody from South Dakota and somebody from Georgia and they heard the same song on the same radio show two weeks ago. That's, that's really something in common. Television, man. Television blew all that out of the water. Television blew that out of the water because all of a sudden people are sitting down and seeing the same things and images are so strong, man. Images are so powerful that, uh, you know, cigarette companies come in and pay um, television shows to have the characters smoking all the time and smoking just totally takes off, right? So it gave this different kind of shared context because people are seeing the same images, hearing the same things. And you get closer and closer sort of knitting among this consciousness. Um, you know, the Internet's a whole other thing. Where, where even sowing division is a type of, uh, type of power play among people. Uh, even creating an artificial discontent um, becomes a, a powerful move. But it's because, again, we are unaware and unwilling to open our eyes to the context that entwines us. To the context that is around and through us. To the ways in which we are subjugated to 
uh, our access of, of information, of products, of um, ways of seeing and knowing ourselves. And, and this is what we're trying to fight against. This is what we're trying to grow out of if we're trying to do anything here today. I mean, you have um, somewhere in the nature of 4,500 radio stations from coast to coast owned by the same company. You have all of these news stations, all of this media, all of these movies that, um, you know, you have it boils down to about 100 individuals getting to choose what you watch, what you're going to watch. So you can follow your likes and your dislikes and you can distinguish yourself from the, your neighbor and you can be better than your neighbor and all of this stuff. And all of that is doing is, you know, I hate to, to use such a, a tried and, and true metaphor here, makes you a little hamster in a wheel. You're being productive. You're doing the work. You're the engine. You're making the world go around. Because you're distinguishing yourself from your neighbors and you're aggressing over them and you're showing how powerful and smart you are. You're showing how much more clever you are than somebody else within the context of this cage and this cage and this cage and this cage. But why? Why? Why is this? Well, the economy demands it. You know, I, I don't remember what the division is. Let's say that it's, uh, it, it's something grim about the top, you know, 0.1% having more money than the than 50% of Americans, the top 0.1% having more money than 50% of Americans. I repeated that on purpose. Um, but even then, you get this guy who's super rich, who buys the most expensive car he possibly can, takes the most expensive trips he possibly can, he's still only going to buy so many cars uh, a month. He's still going to only buy like one or two pillows a year, depending on how many houses he's furnishing. He's only going to buy that one bed. But 50% of Americans who have the same amount of money that, that add up to this guy, they've all got to buy pillows. They've all got to buy beds. They've all got to buy cars. So that's where the engine is. And if you can keep people competing and keep people showing off and keep people um, thinking of themselves in certain lights and make them uh, put, put themselves onto shelves, to put themselves into certain buying patterns and, and behaviors, then you have something that's um, a much more powerful engine to run things. And then that way, when there's a giant pandemic and everybody has to stop working and it gets really scary, you get the, the wealthy people who gather together and say, no, 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 you guys got to work for your money. Don't tax us. You know? And then you're begging to go back to work. You've got to pay your rent. You've got to pay for health care. You can't lose your job. Your job's linked to, to your ability to stay sick, uh, to stay away from being sick. You rush back out there because the engine has to keep going. It's not actually as necessary as we think it is. We could create new realities. We could create new systems of value. We could create new ideas behind how to distinguish ourselves. We could create new notions of wealth. But this one's working just fine for the people for whom it's working just fine. And they're resistant to change. There's a resistance to that. So... 
being aware to this and being awake to this, um, I'm not pushing you to be cynical or to make yourself sick about it or to make you feel powerless, but to make you examine your current structure of goals, your current structure of meaning, and imagine yourself looking back at you from hundreds of years in the future and thinking, did this person have a meaningful life? Or were they just stuck, stuck in the machine that told them what meaning was? And, and that's maybe the only choice we get to make. <laughs>